Well, as we are wrapping up this series on Galatians, we're wanting to focus, as we've been doing throughout this series, on this connection between the concept of resurrection life and our very real lives. Because these aren't just these theological concepts that we've been listening to a variety of different people preach on up here. Like these, these concepts have practical implications for the nitty-gritty and the messiness of our day-to-day lives. And so we want to ground ourselves here so that we don't just move on from this season of Eastertide and forget that the resurrection actually matters and how much, as Kyle said, you know, way back at the beginning of the series, how the gospel is inherently disruptive and it radically changes the narrative both for the Galatians and for us. So let's kind of recap where we've come from. You've heard everybody else recap it so far, so I get to recap it today. Um, So you're hearing it from a new person. So Galatians is all about the gospel, right? It's all about freedom and life in the spirit. And from the very first moment, Paul has been zealously defending the gospel of Jesus against these false gospels that have cropped up where people are trying to add to the finished work of Jesus in one way or another. And Paul is going to make this like really clear distinction between the true gospel and these anti-gospels. And so he's, he's kind of writing about these two different areas where people tend to slide into false gospels. On the one end of the spectrum, he's going to talk about legalism. And on the other end of the spectrum, he's going to talk a little bit about license. So when we're talking about legalism, we're talking about how we can choose to enslave ourselves Again, by returning to the law and reverting to doing things in the old ways that we used to do. And Paul is saying that when we do that, we are missing out on the freedom of life in the spirit. And as Paul very passionately communicates, he says, if you go back to a life that does not require the death and resurrection of Jesus, that is no life at all. And that is no gospel. And Kyle gave us this background like early on in the series. He said the Jewish people have had this way of doing things, this way of being set apart, that they've been practicing for hundreds of years. And now Jesus is changing the narrative on them. And one of the implications of him doing that is that the people who are culturally and ethnically non-Jewish can now be a part of the family of God. So for people in the Galatian church to be requiring non-Jewish Christians to observe the Torah would be acting like Jesus didn't fulfill the promises of God or deal with sin. And it would negate the freedom that Jesus has earned for us, and it would limit who can be a part of the family of God. So Paul is like painting this picture of salvation that you all, I'm sure, have heard before, right? That we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And just a reminder from Jonathan's message on Mother's Day, I think we need to remember, like, Paul is not saying that the law is bad. Paul is saying the law is good, the law had a role to play, but the law doesn't give us the power to obey. And now our relationship with God is based on Jesus' work, and we have the Spirit, and the Spirit does give us the power to obey. And I think that's a good segue to this other false gospel that Paul is kind of warning us about, this idea of license. Paul is saying freedom in Christ is not a license to sin. And the same spirit by whom we're justified is working in us now for our sanctification. And he gives us life. And so now we live by him and then we walk by him. And we use our freedom not to gratify our flesh, but to serve one another in love. So as Paul is ending Galatians, where we've had this whole conversation about who can be a part of the family of faith, he's going to pivot 
and he's going to move into describing the type of community that's created when a group of people actually believes and lives out the gospel. And he's going to say that this environment that the gospel creates, it's one that brings down the walls, right? And it allows for this radically diverse group of people to be a part of the family of God. And those are going to be people who serve one another, who consider others better themselves. It's people who engage with and are willing to put themselves out there and rebuke each other. They're going to be generous. They're going to bear one another's burdens. They're going to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, like Farrell talked about last week. And this is where we want to kind of end our series, like on this connection between the resurrection and the lives that we live in community with one another. And how, through the Spirit, Jesus is transforming us into people who can both love God and love each other in sustainable ways. So that's kind of our summary, and I'll kick it over to you. Yeah, and so when you move into chapter 6 then, and it's picking up from chapter 5, what Paul is doing in Galatians specifically in the letter as you follow the argument is he's moving from this space of talking kind of like abstractly about some stuff and then he's really and he moves into the life of the Holy Spirit and what it means to live into the Spirit and to participate in it. it but he really hones in on this idea that we're talking about how you foster this and live this out in community. And so at the end of chapter 5, he's going through all of these issues where he's kind of talking about like the communities at risk of kind of coming to an end on this macro level because of all of these problems that they that they're they're finding themselves having. And then you get to 6 verse 1 and it feels like a bit of a hard transition and it may be and, and there's reasons for that and you can go into debates of all of these different things. But what he jumps from is this kind of like macro like the community is going to come to an end to this like very micro of like how to handle the problems and the shortcomings and the faults and the burdens of, of the community on these like really small kind of individual levels. And so that's the link between five and six and kind of the end of Galatians to the whole book is that we're moving to what it looks like to create a community. If you remember at the beginning of the series, Kyle talked about how that a lot of times we want to make Galatians about salvation or soteriology is the fun theological word for that. Um, and then the next $2 word you get is ecclesiology, which is that Galatians is really about the church. It's not so much about salvation as it is about the church. Romans, more about salvation, right? This is more about how you are a community and a people of salvation. And as we've been talking through Eastertide and Easter season, we're talking about what does it mean to be a community and a people that live out the resurrection in this radical way. So you see this happening in the transition from 5 to 6. And this is the link in verse 1 is kind of what's happening there. So he says, listen, like you guys are having these really big problems, right? You're having these issues. So let's like get on the micro level and kind of address how we come about this. If someone is sinning, you have to address it. You have to talk about it in a certain kind of way. This in verse 1 where he says, you who live by the Spirit. Uh, there's some debate here as well about what he's talking about. Uh, if you're familiar with some of the stuff that's going on culturally, there in certain churches and areas, there was these people that thought there was separation, yada, yada, yada. Anyways, so what it seems to be implying is he's saying any and all who might find themselves living in the community of God as one whose life should be defined by the Spirit. He's kind of made that clear up until this point. So he's saying if you are those people, if you are those who find yourselves living in the Spirit of God, operating in the kingdom by the power of the Spirit, then you are the ones above all people 
who should be coming alongside one another to help correct and guide and lead. And you do so in such a way that is gentle, that is kind, and that is loving. And, but then he immediately goes to the next verse, 2 through 5. And what he's saying here and what he's getting at is that in that, though, be, be aware of the fact that two things can happen very quickly. One, that when you do such of a correction, when you come to someone, that the temptation will be to be self-righteous, to be judgmental, to kind of stand above and to remove yourself and place yourself above the person and kind of come in as a corrector or as like someone that's got it all figured out. And what he's wanting to make clear in these few passages or these few verses is that you come alongside one, someone, correct, lead, guide, gentle nudge back in the right direction with the understanding and knowing that you, in a short time, will probably also need similar correction. As Molly and I were talking about this, I, I used parenting as an example as I made the joke that you guys need more than just parenting examples, but it's what you get to me. Um, and so... Like, in parenting, like, you should, like, my boys are raising me, honestly, in a lot of ways more than I'm raising them. I'm keeping them alive, okay? That's, that's like, my primary job, and I'm, so far I'm doing an okay job at it. Only one ER visit at this point. Um, but, like, my job is kind of keep them alive, teach them how to be human, teach them how to be decent people, to not run by someone in the grocery store and slap their, like, rear end on the way through, you know? This happened real life not that long ago. Okay, so like I'm just teaching them how to be socially acceptable human beings and to exist and to function. Um, and sometimes not that well, but we're doing it. But really the maturity and the growth and the raising and the changing, like that's happening on me as much as it is on them in our relationship and in our connection to one another. I think what Paul is saying is that in the same way this is going to happen in the church. Those of you that are living in the spirit as you correct, as you guide, as you lead, know that it is going to come back to you as well. That it's going to be something that functions on you and operates on you. And so you are going to participate in that. And so don't think you're self-righteous. Like don't think you're above this reproach in your own way and that you're above this direction and this guidance in your own ways. But know that this is going to come back around. And secondly, Know that when you do come and correct, when you do come and sit alongside of someone and say, hey, listen, like, we got to get you back on the path. We got to get you, like, this isn't the way that the life of the Spirit God has for you and intends for you is supposed to function and operate. What you need to understand is in those moments, he says that your burdens, like, you have to carry one another's burdens. You have to understand that in that space and in that moment, that there is something happening where you do not just come into a person's life and say, hey, you shouldn't do that, and you walk away. You come into their life, and you understand that you then walk with them. When we see people that are in a mess or in a problem, that like what we have to understand is in those moments that like their problem is our problem. Like, like the, the mess of what that creates, as especially in a community, as believers walking alongside of each other, like that then becomes our problems, and we're not separated from it. And I think of a lot of what we talk about in the church at large in the 21st century, uh, and the issues we've seen, and how we've tried to, like a lot of us have kind of recognized the abuse, and, and the things where spiritual authority and all that has been uh, misused, and we go, hey, like, like we don't want to be that. But as believers, as the church, like the church's sin is our sin. 
we get this as we talk about racial equality and seeing justice and restoration happen. We understand that though we may not have been the ones that were guilty of the things that have happened in the past, like the problems that are created, Scripture makes pretty clear that like we then have to bear the burdens of that. Like we can't just say like that was bad and move on from it. And we even see it in some of the live conversations that we have this week. Molly and I were discussing this this morning of like the political kind of like cultural ramifications that we see. Like we condemn the acts of violence that we see happening in Texas. And we do those things and we pray and and we say that it's wrong. But when we see these problems, when we see sin, when we see destruction, like we have some role in playing in bearing the burden of that thing. I think of it in the abortion conversation and wherever you fall politically and what your solutions to that are. I think all of us would collectively agree, like societally speaking, I I don't think there is anyone that finds joy in seeing abortions happen, right? Like that's just, that's monstrous that isn't true of either side. But what we have to understand is that we can stand firm in what we believe in and advocate for life from womb to the tomb as a people of God advocate for seeing that like life be brought into the world and and it be like cultivated and cared for in such a way that we can take our stand as what we believe but the reality of it is in what Paul's saying here in Galatians and I think it applies beyond just our community but at a really large level is that we have to understand that like when we see these things the burden is all of ours to bear like you have to have skin in the game you have to be in the fight And if that's true at these political levels, and I use these kind of as a way of us to kind of grasp like what it means, like then this is true on a very micro level as well. And this is what Paul's doing, right? Going macro to micro. Then as we walk alongside of one another in life, in this community, in this space, as we share with one one another, then we have to understand that like as we correct, as we cultivate one another, as we challenge one another, that like the things that we see in someone, you cannot look at someone and go like, that is wrong, and then just kind of remove yourself from it. As you see it and as you acknowledge it, you as their brother and sister in Christ, then enter into the difficulty with them and say like, I'm committed to walking alongside of you, carrying this with you. This is like your sin, your problems, your difficulties, your griefs, they're mine to bear with you. And we do that as a community and we do it Because what Paul's doing, and you might have noticed this as we read it, it, he does this interesting thing that almost seems to contradict itself. In verse 2, he says, bear one another's burdens. And then in verse 5, he's going to say, because you're all individually responsible. And what he's getting at and what we're trying to get at and what we're trying to, like, articulate as best as we can is saying that, like, there's this thing that happens that what Paul sees and knows is that, yes, there is individual responsibility. And yes, at the end of the day, you will stand for what you did and what you, like, what, what, how you acted, how you responded to things. That is a future reality that one must come to grips with that they will have to take account for. Scripture makes that clear. But he seems to be saying that there's this interplay where we as the church bring that future reality now and we try to cultivate each other into the thing that we know we are supposed to be. And when you begin to look at it this way, reproach, admonition, the challenge of being a community that is willing to sharpen one another, to challenge one another, which I think is really what he is insisting community in Christ and the resurrection has to be, 
is this whole other way of like existing and functioning with one another. When it does that, what we're agreeing is that we believe this thing is worth fighting for. We believe it's worth struggling for and wrestling with and pushing towards. And so he's saying, if that be so, if this is who we want to be and we know who we are supposed to be and become, then we as a community have to like do that together with one another. Yeah, yeah, there's like, I can't look past that there's this sense of tenderness and vulnerability that's here on both sides, um, both on the side of people who are in these positions of spiritual authority who are doing the restoring and the correcting, and on the side of those who are being restored. Because how often do we find ourselves in those places where we never thought we would be? And that's why there's this like sense of gentleness and meekness here, because we are one step away from being the ones who need the correction. And so for me, it feels like it, it seems as though, as, as Jonathan is saying, like Paul starts with this narrower concept, this micro concept of gently and compassionately restoring those who are in sin. And then he's going to broaden the picture to a more general one about empathizing and bearing with one another through whatever trials and burdens and stuff that comes up because sin is obviously a burden like there's no question about that but so are plenty of other things and we are really no match for the harsh realities of life and the things that that threaten our joy in God are a burden and one of the chief ways that God comforts us is through the community of people who are all around us and God has designed the system so that when times of struggle struggle come we have people around us who can lift us up and that's our responsibility like as the church and and this is the thing that that stands out probably most to me is that on the flip side in order for a burden to be borne, the person who has the burden has to be willing to share it. And this is a really vulnerable thing, and it's not something that we are generally very good at, that idea of letting ourselves be weak. Yet, it is often, at least in my life, that's like the very road to healing that we're so desperately longing for. Because we fight so hard for autonomy and independence, and it's so culturally ingrained, at least in America, that it feels almost hardwired. And I'd say it's that, that way to the point where I, you probably have a physical response in your body to these statements. If I were to say, if you were to say to yourself, what if I let myself be weak? What if I let someone help me? I can't tell you what you're feeling when you say that. Could be resistance. Maybe it feels like relief. It might feel like panic. Um, but whatever it is that you're feeling in your body when you say that, like, what if I let someone help me? That is probably an indicator of some level of spiritual health in that area. Why? Because how we behave towards other humans, letting other humans in to help me with my problems is often a demonstration of how we also behave towards God, right? We resist that dependence towards him. And I'm reading, I'm reading this really fantastic book right now by K.J. Ramsey um, called This Too Shall Last, and it's about suffering. And she says in the book, in like early chapters, that the point of faith was never for you to just sustain yourself on your own. The point of faith is to form your entire embodied relational self through weakness and dependence and realize that you were made to know and be known. So when I choose to hide myself and my vulnerability and not share my burdens, I am following the example of a man and a woman in a garden a really, really long time ago, and I am acting against the evidence that exists for God's continued acceptance of me 
in the face of my sin and shame. And so when we refuse to share our burdens, which is this kind of flip side of the equation, we are really crippling ourselves and robbing each other of the chance to be the body of Christ, this dependent and interdependent system that's practically and tangibly caring for one another. Yeah, I think that what he's wanting us to see is that a community is one that is somehow like mutually submitting to one another and caring for one another and seeing that. And in that, then it's a community of gentleness. It's a community of humility. It's a community of like kindness and love. We've seen the way admonition and correction comes poorly when it comes as challenge uh, uh, that is out of like spite. But when we begin to see community and relationships in this way of like, uh, it's not a zero sum game, like that I can celebrate your victories and your growth and your maturity and that like that, that's mine. Really simple ways of like seeing that this is, I think, a, a practical example of how this might play out in the real world. I like to travel and uh, there was a season in my life where I didn't get to do that at all and I would get really, really uh I'll use the correct word here, jealous, not envious. I was not envious of them. I was jealous of people that got to travel, meaning which, that I thought that in some way, because they were traveling, they, they were then better than me, and they, they had better experiences and a better life and all of this. And I not only like wanted the experiences they were having, but I wanted to be seen in the ways that they were being seen because of those experiences. So I made a pact with myself in that moment. This may seem really out of left, but this, I promise it connects in my brain, so hopefully it'll connect in yours in a moment. But like, I made this pact with myself that when my friends traveled, that I would do really subtle things like send them 10 bucks to get donuts and coffee, or like, that I would live vicariously through them and not see it as like them getting to do something that I wasn't able to do that made them better than me, but them getting to do something that I then got to participate with them in by texting them and seeing pictures and being really excited that my friends got to go do these really crazy things. And then I would be like, please, when you come home, give me all the details. I want to know everything you did. Like, nothing's too boring. And I did it in my soul in a way to, like, kind of help me see that as, like, I get to go on that trip with them even though I'm here. Like, that is my experience is I get to learn from them and grow from them and be cultured. That's a small, fun thing. And then I think on the flip side of that, what Paul's getting at in this correction and this idea and the creating this culture where this exists is where we look at one another in a way that where we don't come with fear and suspicion and doubt and assuming that everyone's out to get us and that, like, we have to make sure that we get ours and that there's only so much of the pie. But the beauty of the gospel is that this thing happens where there is no zero-sum game that we're playing, where the beauty of the church that we say this repeatedly at Mosaic is that actually as we come together and as we grow, we become more than the whole of our individual parts. And like the, the somehow this thing happens among us through the power of the Spirit and the kingdom of God that as April grows and as like that happens and she matures that then like I grow and mature with her and like I'm elevated and I'm brought into that life in a deeper and fuller way and that I benefit from that and we grow together and as, as someone else finds a way to like be recognized whatever it might be right like we could give a thousand examples but this is the way that the culture of the kingdom is supposed to work the culture of the church should exist in such a way that we want to be challenged, we want to grow, we want to get better with each other, 
And so that there's a gentleness and a humility and a kindness and an excitement for one another that then begins to invade into the culture of where we're at. And that's our hope for Mosaic is that we could be those kinds of people that celebrate one another. So then when you if you do that well and that is the space you come from and you're vulnerable and you're honest and you're open with one another and there's relationship and there's community then correct doesn't feel so, like correction doesn't feel like somebody's coming in and judging you and telling you what to do, but you understand that like we're all trying to pull this thing in a certain way and grow this thing in a certain kind of way and not just talking numerically there, but like we're trying to grow the depth of this and we all benefit from it. That's community, right? Like this isn't a network. We're not trying to ascend to the top and use one another to get things from one another. We're trying to grow the whole thing in such a way that we all benefit as we grow and develop. And so then when someone comes, you say, oh, yeah, 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 I get that. And so this is why then what Paul seems to be taking a weird turn into verse 6. Uh, I'm going to let Molly talk about this one since it talks about paying your teachers. Uh, but uh, he takes this weird turn, and, but it's connected to this idea of generosity. Yes. Okay. So we're going to kind of talk through the next set of verses here, starting with verse six. So verse six says, let the one who is taught the word, it's all of us, share all good things with the one who teaches. And I'm just going to come out and say it, that like asking for money is weird, right? It makes us feel weird and uncomfortable. And I think this is a verse that can make a pastor feel a little bit weird. <laughs> However, right, we don't back up from aspects of the word that make us feel uncomfortable. We walk through them. And so while it might feel weird to be talking about asking for money, what is not weird is learning to be generous and to be a blessing to those who bless you, right? And this is the way that God has designed the system, and it is natural. And Paul is saying there is this mutually beneficial partnership between the teacher and the taught, and we are together in this thing, and generosity is a mark of living freely in the spirit. And I think it's important to note, like, this is not the only place in scripture that we see this. In 1 Corinthians, it talks about how the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel are supposed to receive their living from the gospel. And then in Luke, it Jesus is talking to um, not just his 12 disciples, but like a larger group of disciples um, and followers and people who proclaim the gospel. And he says, you should go into these different cities and you should stay there and you should eat and drink whatever it is that they give you because the worker deserves his wage. So this is not the only place that we see this. And I think that's important to note. But um, it, it's, this is a natural thing for us as the body of believers to want to bless those who are blessing us as they minister the gospel to us. Can it has this been abused? Absolutely. And that's ugly and, and abhorrent. And like, I'll let Jonathan talk to that, if, speak to that if he wants to. But generally, like, we can bless the people who are ministering the grace of God to us in whatever way we can. And that's natural and normal. You I'll add just to add that? this one thing that if you think about the words of Jesus here, that not only does Jesus goes further than Paul, Paul is simply asking you to bless those that have blessed you. And that is, he's using the, t the example of teaching in the context of like the whole community that those that are blessing you those that are admonishing you all of these things that like you should bless them in return jesus will take it further and say don't just be generous to the people that can repay you like so paul is actually like watered down here a little bit from what the call of the gospel in or in the gospels of we hear the teachings of jesus jesus is going to say bless those that can't bless you back like Throw a party for those that can't invite you to a party. Give to those that have given you nothing because that's 
that's the call of the kingdom. That's the economy of the kingdom. Um, and, and so that's, I would just add that here to that of like, this is the starting point, uh, not, not kind of the end goal. Like the starting point is to see this in this space, but that he wants, like Jesus would really call us to go beyond that and to love and to care and to bless and to, uh, and to uh, give to those that haven't even had the opportunities to give to you yet or may not ever be able to give back to you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so then verses 7 through 9, Paul is going to get into this analogy about sowing and reaping. And he's going to say essentially that what is true agriculturally about a harvest can be applied to our spiritual lives. And I don't know about you, I don't know a ton about farming and growing things, but I think these laws are pretty clear, right? These are laws of life in the spirit. So Paul is going to say, first of all, you're going to reap what you sow, like begots like. So if you want to grow watermelon, you can't plant cucumbers, right? If you sow to the flesh, you're going to see the fruits of the flesh. And if you sow to the spirit, you're going to see the fruits of the spirit. And there's a warning here. He says we can't fool God, and the results of poor sowing are going to be evident. So you reap what you sow. Next, you reap more than you sow. There's like a multiplication effect here. And Paul's not saying that like if you give $50 to something that you're going to get $100 back, right? But God is promising that if your heart is right with him and you're sowing these seeds of generosity, that he is going to give you back things that money cannot buy, right? Okay, third, third law here. He says you're going to reap later than you sow. Um, and Jonathan and I were talking about this word liminal. Um, there's a liminal space here, which basically means this, like, the between space. Um, and it basically means that, that we, have, we have sown our seed, but we are not yet reaping the harvest. And in between, there is this space where we are going to have to wait. And there's a reminder here that we have to endure in that space, even though we're growing weary. And obviously, it's easy to give up because... There's times where we're going to feel like we're missing out and we can't see a way. But this verse is promising that in due time, we will reap. That's a promise. How much you're going to reap, you're going to reap enough. We'll, we'll kind of come back to that in a little bit. But those are those first three rules of the harvest. And I think the last one that we're seeing here is you can't, you can't change last year's harvest, um, but you can change next year, right? You can't change it. Once it's out in the field, it's growing. What's growing is going to grow. Um, but we can, we can look at the future, and it kind of begs the question, like, what kind of harvest do you want? What kind of return do you want? What are you doing with your resources? And because this is the fact, like, our faithfulness here on earth has implications for our eternal experience, and so we're trying to not give up and to hold on to that promise. Do you want to add anything to that before I go to verse 10? Okay. All right, last verse, verse 10, says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. So once again, it seems like Paul is starting with this narrower idea, right? Be generous to those who are ministering the gospel to you. And now he's expanding it, and he's going to say, actually, you should make generosity your way of life all around. And you should be generous in your words and in your deeds, and you should do that to both to your friends, to your enemies, to the people who can't do anything for you, all of those things, and right? And we see this in Hebrews, like this is pleasing to God. And then in 1 Timothy, it's going to tell us by doing that, we're storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And so by doing this, we are investing in life in the spirit as opposed to life in the flesh. Yeah, and I would just kind of expound on this part by saying, like, as we think about this investing in the life and investing in the spirit, uh, investing in the flesh, investing in the spirit, resurrection life, community, uh, kingdom of God, and all of this, 
Something that I was telling Molly was foundational to me growing up. I understood that I didn't have to be good to earn my salvation. I understood that God loved me because of who I was um, and, and all of the different things. And th- but there was a, a legalism or a fundamentalism that wasn't spoken that was kind of in the waters. That it was understood, though, that only like, and, and I mean this in like a universal. I'm not talking about in a way of following Jesus, but in a universal way. Uh, there was a moral ethic or universal ethic or code or a universal moral, whatever you want to say here, that existed that was only available to those that were inside the kingdom of God. Like it was like it was like kind of gate kept in some way. And so if you wanted to be a good person, if you wanted to be uh, living a functional and efficient life, whatever it might be, like you had to sort of be a Christian and everyone that was outside of that w- was not welcomed into that circle. Like it didn't exist for you. And when we read things like this flesh, life of flesh versus life of spirit, if you have that paradigm or that lens in which you're kind of seeing that conversation, then I think the temptation is to see all of those as like really bad things and to then kind of like look at that and go, well, that's not me. Like I'm, 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 I'm good on that. Like I, like I check all those boxes. I'm living life in the spirit. But what I would say is a, is a way of challenging in this moment and, and to be a community that challenges and, and looks to, to rise to more is that, like, I don't think Paul, that there are moments where flesh is used very negatively. Uh, and there's the three great uh, enemies of the soul, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've preached on those here. We had a series that was titled that. Um, and there's this thing where flesh can be used in that kind of way. And in this way, Paul is talking about the corruption of the flesh. Um, but, but I don't want you to hear this as like that when he talks about that, that it's just like all of the uh, worst sins that you can think of or all these like really bad things um, that are, are sort of brought to mind. Because that's our temptation. It's like, oh, well, they probably knock old people out of their way and like they struggle with like these deep sins and all of that. But this investing, I think what Paul's getting at, and this is the whole point of our series, and we'll start to sort of land this plane here uh, to some degree fake landing one um but there's this thing where like we hear that but what paul's saying is like no 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 no. like some of this stuff's not bad like some of this stuff isn't that you're investing into like there's not necessarily anything like inherently evil about it in fact like inside of this like normal kind of universal moral and ethic like you might really be a great citizen you could be a good upstanding person good worker good brother good husband uh, and you can do these things. The things themselves are not what, like, that you're investing in and that you're giving yourself to may not inherently look all of that like that they would be corrupting of you. They may not look all that deceitful or off the path necessarily. And the weird thing is, is in the community of God and, and, and uh, this thing that we do here in the church, what may be the things of the flesh for you may not be the things of the flesh for the person sitting next to you. David Eden and I were having this conversation about churches in general and money and budgets and how they spend things. And I'm like, I'm just hesitant because I know the Lord calls people to do specific things. And like, just because that's not my calling doesn't mean that I can stand and say, well, they're doing something that is completely wrong. And so it's really interesting, but it's this thing where you have to be raw and honest before yourself your community around you and the Lord of like, what is the story that God intends for your life to tell? 
And are you investing into that narrative that God has over you? Or are you investing into the narrative of the story you want your life to tell? I used the traveling example at the start, so I'll run with it to keep a thread here. Like, traveling is not bad in that season, that moment, and even in my life. Some of the things that I still would like to do, I, I just don't feel free to do them because they're investing in something that I want. I could do those things, and I would not be wrong for doing them. I have the freedom to do them in Christ, and it wouldn't make me a bad person to do the, some of the things that I would like to do. But it's not investing into the life that God has for me. And this is the reality of the resurrection that if we get anything out of Eastertide and hold on to, is that like what God is calling each and every one of us as a result of the resurrection is to live this wild and full and crazy life that is only possible for you, and it is only possible by the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the giving of his spirit to like fulfill you into that. And so if you are not living in such a way that it is only capable or possible by those things, then I think God has more for you. And your life begins to look radically and wholly different as you step into resurrection life. And as you step into these things, and this life that then that is available to you in the spirit, when you begin to invest into those things, those narratives, those stories, those promises, what Paul is saying is that he, God then promises that you will reap from that investment, that you will like take in good things from that. But unfortunately, as Molly was saying, it just doesn't happen right away. And so he then begins to like come back to this idea of creating a type of community and a space that holds tension for what it looks like to not give up on investing in this and allowing your life to become radically different and allowing your life to look radically other than what it would have looked like had you continued to pursue what oftentimes are good things, but just not what God has called you to in the life of resurrection and the spirit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's that it's that in-between space where we we're waiting. That's like what I keep coming back to. Like I, I can pretty easily accept that like I'm going I'm gonna reap whatever it is I sow to like this exponential degree. But where things get sticky for me is that space between the sowing and the harvest where we're hearing all these things about life in the spirit and we process it like they're good things and we want to be investing our life in that way. But it gets hard when we feel like we're not seeing the results of the work that we're putting in. And that's why we're being encouraged to endure. Like we've, we've sown our seed and the harvest has been promised, but we are not yet seeing it. And I think this is particularly relevant when we think about suffering in our lives in whatever way that, that looks. Because suffering creates this, this really startling like polarity in our experiences. And for me, at least, like, this is what the very essence of faith is. And I've had conversations with a lot of you about this. Like, that space in the middle where you know that this thing's been promised, but you're not seeing it yet. Like, that's the faith part of things. That's the not having sight part of things. And that's where we really, really need community. Like, we need the people who have gone before us and They've seen the harvest, right? And so they can affirm that this promise is true and that we can hold on to it. We need the people who are also waiting for their harvest because then we know that we're not alone, right? There are other people who are waiting for things that they've been promised, but they're not seeing them yet. 
And then we need the people who are behind us a few steps, who are currently sowing their seeds, because they remind us, like, this is a cycle. And as we, we've talked about with Eugene Peterson, like, this is a long obedience in the same direction. So we need people in community in all of those different seasons so that we have the strength to endure. And that takes us back in my head to, like, that, that gentle, compassionate push from the first part of the passage how we're talking about giving up on autonomy and like actually depending on each other and bearing each other's burdens. Because if we're asking the question like, how do we endure? The answer for me at least is that we have to learn how to rely upon God and on the spirit. We have to rely upon one another because fatigue and burnout, like those things come when we make doing it our own way, like our way of life. And we can't play like the long game of faithfulness without that like beautiful reach from weakness. And so we have to remember that like we are loved in our humanity, like especially because of our humanity. And so I think that that kind of leads us into like, what does this mean for us now? Like it sounds good, but like, where do we go from here? Yeah. And I think that that's like kind of the big question that we can't necessarily answer here, but it, it is a community of vulnerability. It's a community of faithfulness, as you said, um, both of those things. And I think that that is like what living into the resurrection means is being that fully human, being real, being honest and coming into this way of existing that is completely separate from or different than the way of existing before resurrection. And, it, and it, we're invited into a whole different uh, way of math, keeping score, whatever you want to talk about, like the economy, the, the, the values, the, the functioning, it's different. And so Galatians really, in a lot of ways, is like, it's a new, N.T. Wright said this in his commentary, and I'm not going to go into all the details of it, but like, it, he's really, Paul is talking about the community in such a way that it's like a new exodus. Like it's this group of people that are coming out and being brought into a new way of existing and being and creating a whole new community, which is what is going back into the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, Exodus. Like that whole thing is this group of people that are being called out to become the people of God. And that is what Paul is saying here in light of the resurrection. You are being called out to come and to be something completely different and to operate in a different kind of way. And here's the reality of it. Just like the people of God, we're going to mess up. We're going we're gonna to fail at this. We're, we're going to like have moments where the, the people of God don't operate. In the name of Jesus, they are not going to function and operate uh, in line with moral ethics and codes that are universally accepted at large. But if we want to be the type of people that see that come to an end, and, and we want to be the type of people that know the goodness of the church and build towards it and fight for it, then we have to be the type of people that are willing to be corrected and, and find reproach in these small moments, that we can be the type of community that creates that sort of challenge and admonition amongst one another in a way that allows us then to become the people that we're supposed to become so that then the, the large failures and shortcomings that we've experienced or maybe have read about or have seen, like, they don't, it's not even possible. But you don't get to correct that if you're unwilling to, like, not even let your best friend mention to you that maybe that's not the best way to handle that situation. So, like, we're hoping to see that happen. We're hoping to see that at Mosaic as we, as we move out of Easter. They've, like, continue to press into what it means to become this community and a culture that exists 
that creates and cultivates generosity, vulnerability, hospitality, and really to become a culture that cultivates the life of the spirit that we read about in Galatians last week, that like that would begin to define the group of people we find ourselves in as well as the individuals. And so as the band comes back up, we'll uh, move to our time of communion as we do out of this. And what I would just encourage you is, is to think about what it means that we find ourselves like sort of living in this. And this is a lot of what the New Testament is getting at. And it's part of why we want to study Exodus this summer and talk about this story that defines so much of the Old Testament. But like what it really means that like we are this people that are kind of in a perpetual Exodus moment. We're in that liminal space. Like we have this promise of what will be when we find ourselves fully in the presence of God and settled in our land. But that's not yet. That will come when Jesus returns. And so in that moment, in that in-between, we find and, and really exist as the Exodus people, in the new, as the New Testament Exodus, this new covenant, this new kind of relationship. But we want to be a people that that changes everything about us. And we do that because of the table. We do that because we know that Christ came, died, and was resurrected. And so questions, like as you come to this moment, as you prepare your hearts and your minds, is hold on to what it means and, and what it looks like that your life would be like predicated on and necessitated by the death, resurrection, and Jesus of this moment that you come to receive in the indwelling and the equipping of the Holy Spirit that we'll talk about next week. Like your life, what does it look like in your life and what you do that you are a Christian and that you live into the life of the resurrection? Wrestle with that question and ask yourself that. Like, how does that change who I am? How does that change how I'm an employee, how I'm a spouse? Like, how does the resurrection actually change your life? Because we carry it with us beyond this season, and we continue to celebrate and grieve and hold all these things into tension as we live in a new kind of way. So as the band plays, you guys know the order of things. Come up, take the bread and the cup. Hold on to those elements. Reflect and pray before God in these moments. Be honest with yourselves. And then Molly's going to come up and lead us in the taking of the elements in between. Come and receive God for the people of God. Amen.